2: Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. Welcome back to Star Talk. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. This week, we're talking about the brain. And I had to bring in Chuck Nice for that Chuck welcome back to Star Talk hey Neil what's happening can't get enough of you man hey I
1: don't blame you man
2: (laughs) (laughs) we brought you in for the Super Bowl show and for the brain show What's left? actually two of my favorite uh, things in the world?
1: F- I find the brain to be one of the most fascinating studies that anyone can undertake. Yeah, you
2: know? that in football. The brain gets bashed in football, so Th- the, there you go. totally hooked up for that. Exactly. So, so it's about the brain because the brain is everything, right? It's, it's. And, I think so. Yeah. And we try to define what separates us from other animals, right? And. It's language, it's abstract reasoning. We do art and philosophy and music and science and. Science! And so we try to sort of say that we are apart from the animals because our brain can accomplish all that. Actually, I think some other animals are doing calculus on the side. You think so? I think so. (laughs) What animal would be able to do calculus? (laughs) If you could pick one. If I could pick one, dolphins. Dolphins, probably. You know, give them a pen. If they could ever use it, they they would show us what's really going on. One of my favorite memories is of uh, one of the Gary Larson comic where the the farm animals and they're just talking to each other. The, the farmer is not there. Right. The chicken is talking to the horse, he's right. talking to the cow, and the chicken says, but if you take the mass and divide it by the square root of the <laughs> right. speed of light, then you get the same answer. Right. But, you know, and the horse answers, but well, you're missing the basic premise of my theory. And then someone else says, farmer, cluck, 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 move. <laughs> <laughs> So for all we know, this is what's really going on. But you know, neither you nor I are an expert on the brain, and we have to yep. reach out into the ether. And find who could help us do this. Cool. And so we found, we found Cara Santamaria. Cara, welcome (laughs) to Talk Radio. Thanks. Yeah, so you're an expert on the brain and brain function. And you've taught it before. Did we call you a neuroscience educator? What's the best title we can use for you?
3: Well, I've taught, I've taught in psychology and biology. I guess you could call me an educator, student of the neurosciences.
2: So aren't we all? Because who knows it all? Nobody knows it all. So everybody's a student, even those who say they're not.
3: That's true. Who
2: profess to say they know it all. That's true. They don't know Jack.
3: No.
4: We,
2: you never really
3: feel like you know much, I think, when you're studying these things. You always kind of look back on what you've accomplished and say, really, am I just a hack here? How much of this did I really gather? There's so much more.
2: Well, there's the stuff to actually learn that we know, and then there's the stuff beyond that that. No one has even figured out yet. Exactly. Right? So There's two, a lot of two that different in frontiers,
3: right? And and astrophysics. I think those are two very big frontiers.
2: They are. One is the inner and one is the outer space. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. And so, what I wonder. So, you taught where in in New York, if I remember correctly, from your I was resume in New York for uh-huh. about a year. Uh-huh. Um,
3: and before that, I was in Texas for many in,
2: years. In Texas, and what do you call home? Now I'm in LA. In LA. Yeah, I'm in LA. No, no. I mean, where were you? Where, where were your roots? My
3: roots are in Texas. In Texas. Definitely uh, a Texas girl.
2: Transplant. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well welcome to Star Talk Radio because we're gonna you. be picking your brain and I try to leave to you that. with some left to, to still <laughs> do your work. All right. As the non scientists in the room, uh-huh. may I point out to our
1: listeners two things. One Kara is hot as hell. That's number one. Number two, she looks about 19. (laughs) So, those are two things you want to keep in mind when you hear the knowledge drop from her lips Uh, uh, that uh, she is hot and and looks like she's 19.
3: I'm not nineteen, by I, the way. Well, of course, so you know. I'm mean, not nineteen.
2: Chuck, why did you pick that age in particular? <laughs> because it's legal. That's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> what I thought, Chuck. There it was. There's no lying in me, <laughs> <laughs> that's why we love you, Chuck. <laughs> so Kara, if you were to describe what your particular expertise about the brain is, what would you say?
3: I think that's still evolving. I think my interest. Was in brain damage, has been in brain damage. That's kind of what I that's where all want the, to continue That's
2: where study. you learn, because you can't go in and poke somebody's brain and find out what happened. you got to wait for stuff to happen accidentally.
3: Yeah, I mean, you can do models with animals, and I've done some of that. But,
2: non-human um, animals.
3: Non-human yes. animals, <laughs>
2: exactly. Right,
3: um, not just um, guys
1: that play for the Lakers. Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but you do, you have to wait and, until something happens, and sometimes you have to wait until autopsy, or at least until you can get good imaging to see what actually did happen
2: mm-hmm. to the person. Right, and so a particular... Uh, injury might damage a certain part of the brain that you'd never knew had a particular function, yeah. And then a person behaves crazy, crazyer than they might have behaved before, and then you've, you've just nailed a spot of the brain for what for causes and effect, right?
3: And and brain damage for you know for a lot of people it's like fingerprints. You want to mm. say that we have classified particular areas that do particular things, and you damage this area and you have this effect, but the truth is nobody has the same brain
1: damage, right? Nobody
2: At, as each it's other. A very organic thing, right? Okay. Yeah. You
3: could damage the same area and have a
1: totally have a different, different outcome. outcome? Yeah, totally. and. It's is that different. just because each individual brain has that particular type of makeup? I mean, the per, the makeup of our brain is that particular.
3: Well, it's 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 similar brain to brain, but. Right. It, it's very rare that only a very specialized region of the brain would be damaged anyway. You're going to have well, see, other that. Well, see, that brings
2: me to ask, because mm-hmm. we, how many, we've got 100 billion nerve cells, I mean, mm-hmm. it, uh, yeah. brain Just cells? The yeah, Just the neurons. Just the neurons. I love saying 100 billion. So let's say oh, that together. cool. 100, 100 billion. billion. Very Carl Sagan. <laughs> Take up the billion out there in that low voice. <laughs> like Sagan. Sagan. I like Carl that. Sagan. Sagan, yeah. Sagan. Saganomics. <laughs> and so 100 billion nerve cells and uh, brain cells, and we typically the naive thought about the brain is that it stores information like a file cabinet and mm-hmm. you go and retrieve it. But recently we've been learning it's much more complex than that, right? In terms of the storage of information and retrieval. Is that right?
3: Well, we, I think we used to think that we could just learn discrete packets of information. You just see something in the world or you experience something through your senses and mm. then it goes to a certain part of your brain and it just lives there until you want to pull it back out. It, right? Like a file, like you said, but really a lot of it is about connections. It's all about taking something in Connecting it to something you already knew.
2: Like Facebook.
3: Exactly. It's a web. <laughs> it's, it's like a social network. A social network.
2: Mind. A neural network. A neural yeah, network. Neural net. Exactly.
1: Can I defriend certain parts of my brain?
3: <laughs> you drink enough. Okay. Probably. Oh, we'll, we'll get back to that. Oh, okay. Right.
2: <laughs> How to defriend part of your memory. It's cool. Now, Chuck, we put you on assignment earlier. Yes, you did. And <clears throat> at, where I work, I'm at the American Museum of Natural History here in New York City. Yeah. I run the Universe part. Of yeah. the museum, which, which includes—by the
1: way, is so cool. If you're ever in New York, you gotta go there. Oh, thanks for the commercials. Yeah, so
2: I run the Hayden Planetarium, but now we—we we, the museum has an exhibit on the brain. Yes, and I actually had not had a chance to view it, but we sent you so you could report back to Star Talk Radio, right? And on what you found and what others found. Yes, we we made the mistake, I think, of giving Chuck a microphone.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I'll tell you the irony of this whole piece. It's uh, the brainless. Going to a brain exhibit. (laughs) All
2: right. (laughs) Let's see what Chuck tells us from the museum, live on location. Well, he was live on vacation. He was was live on location. He was live on vacation. Check him out. What is your
1: favorite part of the brain?
4: The stuff... In the brain.
1: The stuff in the brain. That's what I need more of. I need more stuff in my brain because my brain is kind of empty. What is it empty? Listen, wait. Rattle my head. Listen. That. Link, link, link. You hear that? Yeah, what's Yeah, that that that's kind of nothing rolling around in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
3: actually a school psychologist.
1: Really? So, now, as a psychologist... Mm-hmm. Do you find that people's experiences and environment or their brain causes them to have psychological problems?
3: No, experiential learning and environmental learning have an impact, I believe, on brain development and the memories that you retain.
1: So how do you explain my mother telling me that something's wrong with me because I ain't right in the head?
2: You're trying to get a free session. (laughs) (laughs) No dice? Help me, Pamela. I'm on vacation.
1: (laughs) Did you learn anything that just totally wowed you?
4: The fact that your brain tells you everything. It makes everything in your body go.
1: Everything. Everything. Even the things that you take for granted. Like you just blinked. I saw you blinked. (laughs) I saw you blink there again. Your brain told you to do that, right? Yep. Do you know why I'm blinking right now? I'm afraid you might hit me. <laughs> I
4: won't do that. <laughs> Thank you. i can I'll rest. tell my these. brain not to do
1: that. <laughs> As a neurobiologist, I'm interested to know what your favorite part of the brain would be.
5: Well, right now, at my age, the hippocampus. How's that?
1: Now? Ah, okay. That would be because the hippocampus is responsible for what? Memory? And, yes, yeah. yes. And, mm-hmm. You have to reuse your your brain in order to keep it going. So the brain is like a muscle. You got to use it? You have to exercise it. it. Use it or lose lose it. it. What was the thing that most impressed you about your own brain that you found out in the exhibit? I think uh, in relation to short and long term memory that it's sleep that actually transfers memories from short term to long term. So you look well rested. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm jet lagged. Are you really? Yeah, I am. Are you from Australia? I am. And so you've had a long flight. Yeah. And did you sleep on that flight? I Only a very little bit. So was there anything else that really impressed you? Something you never thought you'd know about your brain that you found out? Uh, no, I can't remember anything
2: mm. else. <laughs> and there you have it: the uh, short term, long term. You need some
1: sleep.
3: I need some sleep.
2: <laughs> Chuck, just anno- just just annoying, <laughs> harassing people. visitors to the Hayden American Museum of Hayden Plan No, actually, the brain exhibit at the American Museum of Natural History. Yeah. So, in there, we heard about the hippocampus. So, Cara, tell tell us about the hippocampus.
3: All about the hippocampus.
2: Yeah, in one minute about.
3: I remember (laughs) first learning about the hippocampus and then teaching my students about the hippocampus. And I would imagine a hippopotamus walking through my college campus, remembering how to get to class. I don't know. That helped me at the time. (laughs) yeah, it's a, it's a deeper structure of the brain. It's kind of underneath the cortex, and it's involved in memory, and it used to be the case kind of after a really famous patient, patient H.M., had his hip- hippocampus damaged um, when he had a surgery for epilepsy. W- scientists all thought, well, this must be the seat of memory in the brain. This is the only place where memory
2: is Once again, stored. because of some accident, then yeah. they know this, yeah, yeah Okay. Exactly. or they believe it. They yeah. could look uh-huh. at his
3: brain and say, well, he's kind of missing this area, and he mm-hmm. can't remember things now. He can't encode new memories. What we've found out more recently is that memory is very ubiquitous in the brain it's in many parts of the cortex and Mm. like we said before it, it, the memory it,
2: of a single thing can be spread around. It
3: can. It can. Not
2: just different things in but different places. But definitely
3: different things. But okay. the memory of a single thing can, too, because we make associations. You know, smells
1: help us. Totally. With memory. Right. Um, man,
2: Chuck, I smell something, and I said, man, I remember that from 19, right. you know, whatever, you know.
1: You know, you're right. I mean, I had, I was home yet, yet today at my parents, and my mother made some food, and it remi- it took me back to being in that home when I was like 11 years
2: old. Yeah, <laughs> right.
3: yeah. that's one of the strongest triggers actually maybe because that's it's what, a very old part of so the brain.
2: comfort food is not just that it is, but that it has a smell. Right, Yeah, yeah. and that yeah. it brings comfort. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Definitely,
3: yeah. And food, flavor. <laughs> flavor is smell. Uh, the meatloaf is taste. waiting
2: for you outside. <laughs> yeah. uh, smell, taste, all this, all of this plugs into flavor. the brain. Yeah, but
3: then that plugs into the brain and it helps us recall memories and encode memories. But really the hippocampus we found is more of kind of a... Uh, a way station. It's the place where memories can kind of first be encoded and then spread out to other parts of the cortex for storage. So
2: this sounds like there's a risk of of misremembering something if it's got to store one place first and then other places later. But we get back to that in another segment. But before we even get there, do you compare the human brain with other brains? Because I've, yeah. I've been reading about this and I, I, I learned that the octopus, which is kind of an extraordinary creature for starters, mm-hmm. ha- can... Each limb, each of the eight limbs kind of ha- can operate autonomously without reference to the brain. This is what I learned about Like it's just, there's
3: ganglia, g- like mi- mini brains. Yeah, mini brains limbs.
2: that can make their own kind of decisions. This Pretty is, cool. This is cool and scary. <laughs> <It's> very <laughs> cool. Awesome.
3: <laughs> well, you know how dolphins sleep?
2: I'd I never asked. Since
3: they have to be underwater, but they're mammals, so they have right. to breathe. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, they, it's yeah. conscious breathing. So they sleep by one hemisphere going to sleep at a time while the other remains alert.
1: Wow. So they, yeah. so they can sleep and still swim to the surface mm-hmm. and breathe. Yeah. But
2: they're sleeping.
3: Half of their so basically they
2: sleep walk.
3: They do or Ooh. sleep swim. They
2: have sleep, sleep swim. Walk. They sleep swim. Sleep
3: swim. Right.
2: And how about whales? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I didn't know that. So they can just show, they got a little switch and mm-hmm. just switching left and right.
3: Just like we have a switch. Well, we have a switch for our whole brain to go to sleep.
2: It'd be interesting to see what different behaviors they're capable of as one half turns off and the other turns on. Definitely. Because we have we have specialization of our brain halves, don't we? Or is that just a, we do. We a fiction do. from the past?
3: No, we do. We definitely have specialization. Right. In different hemispheres.
2: That, that's always, uh, and other, you know, and sort of creatures that are much smaller, that I learned about flatworms, mm-hmm. that they don't even have a brain. Oh, thank God, because you have scared me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you're wondering if Flatwood's doing calculus on the side? <laughs> and where does Chuck fit into this exactly! evolutionary?
4: <laughs>
2: well, we're running, running down our first segment. When we get back, my interview with neuroscientist Oliver Sacks.
1: IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the US. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And StarTalk radio listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com/starttalk. Visit IXL.com/starttalk to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
2: We're back. Chuck Nice, thanks for being on Star Talk. Let me reintroduce our guest today. In from Los Angeles, this is Cara Santa Maria. Hello. Hello. Did I pronounce your name right, Cara? Yes,
3: you did.
4: Thank you. Thank
2: you for that. Cara Santa Maria. Santa Maria. That, right. <laughs> wasn't that one of the Columbus ships? Yes, it was. It was. Yeah. Good, good. Many a
3: nickname growing up. Yeah. Nina Pinta.
2: And so we promised you before the break that we would take you to an interview that I conducted with Oliver Sacks. He's. he's probably the world's best-known neuroscientist. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't heard of him, you may have known the movie the Awakenings. In fact, that movie was about him. That cool. was about him. Him? Now, Robin I'm... Williams was playing
1: him. Okay, I, I was going to say, I'm, I'm guessing he's not the Robert De Niro character.
2: Because <laughs> that would be truly extraordinary. <laughs> let, me, let me double check IMDB to make sure. <laughs> but yeah, Rob, Rob, he, uh, Robin Williams portrayed him in that film. It was cool. sort of semi-autobiographical. I think it was done up a little for the movies as right. well. But basically, it was a story of his life and you know breaking in as a, as a neuroscientist. His latest book, The Mind's Eye, is about how our brain helps to understand what the eyes see. See, mm. because your eyes are the organ unto themselves, and they just got to hand it over to the brain. Right. Then the brain has to make sense of it. Right. So this is what's, what's what's somebody needed to put write a book on that. And there's, there's going to be a movie released. Well, there wasn't. It was the music never stopped. Did that movie come out yet? I, it, I think it did. did. It already yeah. did. did. It never stopped. It did come out. That's based on one of his essays called "The Last Hippie." Which was published in his book, An Anthropologist on Mars.
4: Groovy, (laughs)
2: man. So apparently he's been places, perhaps including Mars. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So that's Oliver Sacks. And in our first clip, he talks about the things that define your identity and your personality. And he describes what role the electrical currents in your brain uh, might play in determining determining that, that. But how. A super-duper electrical current from outside your brain can really mess with it.
1: Oh, man, I think that's what they wanted to do to me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's the part of your life we'll get to at another show, Chuck. Let's see where, let's, let's just see where Oliver Sacks takes
5: us. A colleague whom I describe in my book, Musicophilia, he is a surgeon here in New York, and in 1994, through a freak accident, he was struck by lightning and he had a cardiac arrest he was dead for half a minute or certainly his brain did not get enough blood or oxygen at that time he had a sort of strange experience he was conscious of being flung back many feet by the thunderbolt by the lightning which hit him and then he felt he was floating forward and he looked down and that he saw his own body with people around him and he said I'm dead But then he seemed to sort of move on, and then a sense of ecstasy came on him, and he saw a bluish white light, and he felt the most wonderful thing in the world was about to happen. And then he regained full consciousness to find someone doing CPR on him. But about three weeks after this, he had a strange emotional and musical change. This man, who had never been interested in music, developed a sudden passion for classical music. First to hear it, and then to play it, and then he wanted to compose it. And this also went with a mystical feeling. He felt that God had sent the thunderbolt, but had also arranged for him to be resuscitated, and that he now had a mission to bring music to the world.
2: Um, Was he religious before this?
5: Not really. I think there were some seeds of religion, but these flared up with the experience, either with the psychological shock of being almost killed, and who knows what neurological changes might have happened as he was electrocuted and when his brain didn't have enough blood. The brain being an organ of electrical current, right? That's what goes on in the brain. Uh, yes, absolutely. There's this chemistry and electricity, and that's it. And, and somehow from this comes thought, imagination, spirit, the idea of God, and everything else. Well, anyhow, this man will put a supernatural explanation on this. However, he is not ignorant scientifically. In fact, he has a PhD in neuroscience as well. As a neurologist, it was up to me to put things in more neurological terms, but without in any way upsetting him, devaluing his experience. And I said, you know, I'm sure this is what you experience and what you believe, but will you allow that something might have happened inside you? For example, it might supernatural intervention make use of existing neurological structures. And he said, yeah. Okay. And at that point where I suggested that the two were not wholly incongruous, he said he would be prepared to have subtle forms of brain imagery or whatever to see whether we might be able to find the parts of his brain which had perhaps been reorganized somewhat, pushing him towards religion and towards music.
1: Wow. Yeah. Okay, I got one thing to ask about that whole clip. What's that?
2: Was that a beep? Yeah, that uh, <laughs> was Star Talk's first beep, yes. This- <laughs> Leave it to a neuroscientist <laughs> to get the first beep on the show. <laughs> We're cool like that. Yeah, cool you're like cool like that. That. Yeah. that was the first beep. That, it, and we had to beep what he, his quote of someone else. That's yes. not even him. Right right, right, right. So that that's what that was. So that's interesting. So what, what confidence this person must have to believe that God would strike him dead with lightning, but then rely on someone to resuscitate him so that he would have these magical musical powers and so, interest.
1: You know, I'm just going to say, and not to Ever devalue someone's religious beliefs or inclinations. You know, when normally when God strikes you, he's (laughs) kind of (laughs) pissed. I'm just saying. (laughs) Hit you with a bolt of lightning. Hit (laughs) Moses with a bolt of lightning and then say, I want you to take these ten rules down to the people. (laughs) No, he said, Moses, come on up here. I want to talk to you.
2: Let's talk. talk.
1: When God strikes you, there might be a little problem (laughs) with
2: you and God. That you haven't really quite figured out yet. (laughs) Right. So so so, Kara, so so we, our identity, it looks like it can be altered by just a, sort of a, an electrical shock. Is that, Do you do experiments with that? It can be altered by that? a lot of things. Oh. Um,
3: you've, you've heard of Phineas Gage? No? No. Uh, Phineas Gage? No, no, no a, sorry. A railroad worker?
2: I uh, certainly maybe ha- the he's 1800s. a railroad worker, <laughs> <laughs> triply not, okay.
3: <laughs> but he was, I mean, he's a super important story that most neuroscience hear about. <laughs> Is he, he the one was, with the spike in the head? Yeah, yeah he's the one with the spike oh, in the yeah, head. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the yeah. tamping iron and it went through his head yes. and it... You know, and blew out part al- of his frontal lobe. He stayed alive. Right. He stayed alive it, it, and, you know, dodged infection, which at the time probably would have killed him with an open head injury. Right. And he was a different person after. Yeah. He was like a womanizer. He cursed all of the time. He was a big drunk. Before yeah, that, baby. he was a very straight So
2: those people today have spikes in their head. <laughs> <laughs> you,
1: just, let me tell you, you just saved my life. <laughs> I got a reason
2: now. It's like, honey, I'm sorry. I just have a spike in my head.
1: <laughs> Don't you see this spike? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so how about memory? It's presumably, it can not only change you, can it bring memory into existence or take it out? Can it make memory sharper or lose it?
3: What, brain damage? Yeah. Um, it could. It could, yeah, could.
2: actually, We see these movies. How about The Bourne Identity? That's a famous one where he just doesn't know who he is. But I've, well, mm. I was going to say, I never met anyone who never knew who they were, but then...
3: There are people who don't know who
2: they are. Who, how many? I mean, there are people have you who met have any? Like,
3: dissociative fugue. I haven't personally.
2: Dissociative fugue?
3: <laughs> yeah, it's a... Psychological condition. And what's that or, in
2: English? Yeah. It's,
3: it's uh, they dissociate from themselves and then they fugue. They go away and they don't know why they're where they are. So you hear these kind of, you know, true crime stories of people waking up in a parking lot mm-hmm. nine towns over and they'd stolen.
2: Covered a car, in blood and, <laughs>
3: and they don't remember any of it. Oh, and sometimes like the crime
2: committed in that state of mind. Yeah, right. sometimes
3: that's you know probably not the case. But even Oliver Sacks did write a story about that. That that does happen.
2: Because he's especially interested in these kinds of bizarre a bizarre thing. And then I was reading that memory begins to decline at age 50. That's no, that's, that's not right. Tunk, that can't be. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get back to that. Me and NASA, we're both losing our memory here. Uh, wait, let's go back to Oliver Sacks and my interview with him in his uh, home office in Greenwich Village, New York. And in this clip, we, I asked him about memories, false or real, and how you get them and how
5: you lose them. Let's see what he tells us. If you do functional imaging of the brain, it is relatively easy to tell if someone is telling a lie, because it's quite a complex business to tell the lie. It's easier to tell the truth, but you cannot tell if someone has a delusion. Because they believe they're telling the truth. Yeah, whether the belief is well-founded or not, if they have the belief strongly and the emotions and the visualized scenes which go with this. And when people say they've been abducted by aliens, they truly believe this. In a book I wrote, and the name of the book is Uncle Tungsten, I mentioned two early memories from 1940 of bombs which had fallen in London. An older brother of mine confirmed one of the memories. He said, yes, it's exactly the way you describe it, but as for the other memory... The memory of an incendiary bombs in our garden and of my father's attempts to stop it and to douse it with sand and water which didn't work my brother said you never saw it and I said what do you mean I never saw it he said we were away at the time and I said but I can see it in my mind now I can hear the crackling of the flames the shouting I see the figures of my father and brother it is so clear in my mind why he said because our older brother sent us a letter and he said, you were fascinated by the letter, and even obsessed. And obviously, not only fascinated by it, but I internalized it and visualized it. It also helps if your brother is a good writer. <laughs> right, yeah. So, this is a, a false memory, or a secondary memory. Is that the same as implanted memories, we've heard? Um, yeah, yeah, in a way, this is a bit like an implanted memory. It had been implanted by a good description, uh, which I think probably appealed to me you know, romantically. It's so sort of exciting. Though I know now that this is a a fictitious or secondary or implanted memory, it does not seem to me any different in quality from the genuine one. And if I had functional MRIs and was asked to recollect these two things, I think one would see pretty much the same areas of the brain, both the visual and emotional areas sort of lighting up.
2: That's cool. So I think there are two kinds of failures of memory. One of them is remembering things that never happened. Right. And the other one is is forgetting things that did.
1: Yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> when we come back, we're going to explore what effects drugs have on brain functions. This is Star Talk Radio. We're back. Star talk. We've got Chuck Nice and Cara Santa Maria in the house. So, in this next segment, we want to talk about, on this program on the brain, we want to talk about other ways the brain can malfunction or function in ways that... Uh, <laughs> differently from how nature intended. <laughs> right. So sure, sure. so when I think of this, I think of sort of psychoactive drugs, drugs that people take recreationally or medicinally mm-hmm. to alter their state of mind. Cool. And I know our our special interview guest, I uh, Oliver Sachs, yes. he he has experimented with drugs and he will tell us about it in some clips coming up. Cool. And so of course if you're a neuroscientist and medical doctor, you have access to drugs. And it's, right. just, it's just interesting. But why would anyone want to do this? I mean, I like my brain. I like when I have deep thoughts about the universe. And almost anything that enters the brain alters your ability to have those thoughts, so I'm just wondering. Can it may Cara,
3: alter it in a positive way?
2: In, 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 in a way, yeah. you'll have deeper thoughts. Deeper thoughts.
3: Why would anybody want to take drugs? Really? No, well, I guess. <laughs>
2: why, no, let me ask you this. So I don't know anyone who said, "Here's an equation <laughs> that I can't solve. Let me take drugs so I can be more intellectually acute in my ability to solve it." Hmm. I've never seen that. Well, ever. I think
3: I, I think there's it's two prongs. Are you looking at solving the equation in a very pragmatic way or in a creative way? <laughs> Do you need an extra mathematics? Where's
2: my paintbrush? Really? Yeah, here's the answer you, to the equation.
3: You don't. You, you really don't think that physics can be very creative.
2: It is. It can be creative, but in the end, the adjudicator is nature. It is mm-hmm. not an unlimited, infinite tapestry. And
3: many drugs are found in nature, and we possess receptors in our brains for some of these drugs.
2: Oh, is that right? Like what?
3: Most all of them, we have cannabinoid receptors. Oh, otherwise in our it
2: brain. would be neutral to us. Yeah. cannabinoid. I hear cannabis in that. Exactly, cannabinoid. Exactly. Cannabinoid. That's code for
3: uh, cannabis receptors.
2: Refer. Which is code for. Pa- oh, pa- oh, sorry. Malurone. Malurone. <laughs> Malurone. Thank you. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we also have receptors for PCP in our brain, and we have not yet really found the endogenous chemical that binds to that. So that's kind of a quandary. Oh, wow. wow. interesting. It's yeah. a frontier. Yeah, it's right. a frontier.
2: Mm. Let's see what Oliver Sacks tells us about his own time in this exploration.
5: In the early 1960s, like a lot of people, especially on the West Coast, where I lived at the time, I took a lot of drugs.
2: Uh Uh-oh, now you can't run for office. No, no, no.
5: But I really wanted to see what I'd read about other forms of consciousness. To what extent would the world open for me? Would it reveal domains, perhaps of natural or supernatural beauty and meaning? Well, they certainly opened domains of natural meaning... On one occasion, since you're an astronomer, (laughs) I haven't mentioned this, it was back in 67, I had started seeing patients with migraine. And one weekend, I took an old book out of the library written in the 1860s. A book was called On Megrim. And then I loaded up pharmacologically. But instead of giving way to fantasy, I started reading this book and the sort of drug ecstasy coupled with what was in the book. And I started to feel that this is a most wonderful book. I felt that the neurological heavens were opening for me and that migraine was shining like a constellation. One of the um, people quoted in the book was an astronomer, the younger Herschel, who had migraine. And describing his migraines, he said he felt like an astronomer of the inward. As I continued to read the book, I thought this is a wonderful, incredible example of mid-Victorian medicine at its best. But it was written in the 1860s, and now this is the 1960s. The author of the book was a man called Living, Edward Living, and I thought, who should be the Living of our time? And there was a very disingenuous clamor of names came to me, followed by a very loud inner voice which said, you silly bugger, you're the man. When I came down from that, that sense that I was the man and this was my subject stayed with me and I wrote my book on migraine and I never took drugs again. So, in a way, the opening or awakening I had was in that drug experience.
2: Interesting. So, he takes drugs and decides to read a book rather than jump off a balcony.
1: This guy is really a scientist. That's all I got <laughs> to say. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime you do drugs and you're just like, hmm, what should I do? Crazy sex? Buy a couple hookers? I think I should
2: read a book. <laughs> that's right. You are truly a scientist. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, that's a whole other state of mind. Exactly. Deep, deep within that. I, I was doing some homework on this, and I learned that, I don't know if you knew this, Kara. that in the 1950s, the CIA experimented with LSD to see if they could uh, alter the memories and perceptions of esp- for espionage purposes. I don't know if you knew about hmm. that. It was an inter- well, the government- Did government seem to work? I, I, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know the outcome.
1: <laughs> the outcome was this. Everybody they experimented on ended up following the Grateful Dead.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually, so that was in the 50s and that's what birthed the 1960s. And you a see lot of there you all
1: soldiers
3: there I think.
2: There it is. And of course this the the psychogenic Factors are not mm-hmm. unique to Western culture or modern culture. Or right. you know, Native Americans long ago. Well, maybe still. You know, the peyotes, peyotes Where did you get that yes, from? A cactus you, or something? Yeah, for your you? vision cool. quest. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's all. It's, I I find it interesting. But are you suggesting that the people who take these inner trips that they're somehow uh, do they function better as people interacting with other people? Hmm. Now, there's this movie out now. What's it called? The Pill. No, it's with Bradley Cooper, it might as I well be called, called the pill. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so it's where uh, so he's apparent I haven't seen the movie yet, but I'm told he takes a pill and he, he and it and yeah. it, it, it actually builds the mental powers and acuity that he has.
3: I think they're trying to say that once he takes the pill, he's now open to experience everything, everything. and pull it, but the truth is, if we didn't have selective attention, we would be less functional.
2: Oh, Significantly
3: okay. less functional. Selective
2: right. attention where that allows you to not filter. be distracted. By... Yeah, we
3: have to be able to filter what gets into our heads. So and people stays with ADD,
2: there. they don't have these filters. Is that? Yeah,
3: they have less of less them. Less of them. Yeah.
1: Less of them. So it's just like I'm going to make the incision right below the A order. What the hell is that? That's so cute. <laughs> oh, that's a cute little bunny <laughs> over <in> there. <laughs> Why is there a bunny in the operating room? <laughs> <laughs> because I'm on peyote. <laughs> oh so, yeah. <laughs> so you don't
2: want ADD surgeons? Yes, that would no, be bad. No,
3: that would be bad. <laughs> Unless they're medicated
2: well yeah and so and also there are people who have re- what I wonder is if mm-hmm. the people have deep religious experience they see Jesus or sure. or or Muhammad right. whatever it might be what parts uh, have people studied what parts of the brain are being excited and what visions they might have and whether that's similar to whatever might be stimulated by drugs um, or are their bodies producing drugs that give them these visions
3: the the actual visions the
2: actual visions
3: well I think that uh, they're uh, are probably a lot of different parts I know that there there are scientists out there like um, Andy Newberg who has written books about religious experience and he thinks that this is a genetic thing. It's something that's in all of us. It's We have a God gene in our brain that allows us to see that. I personally disagree with that view. Mm-hmm. I don't think that religious experience is something that's always encoded in our brains. I think it comes from external sources. But
2: it could be in some people's brains and not others, right, what's wrong with that? So it could, it, be, could, ge- be. It could be a genetic trait for some people. But for it could so, yeah. be
3: that that's what, whatever's happening in your brain, that's how you choose to describe the experiences in religious terms.
2: I see, because you have a religious context and- in which sure. to interpret it. And if yeah. you don't have the religion, maybe it's aliens that you're looking at. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Which is very easy to figure out because all we have to do is examine your anus. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> Seriously.
1: And if there's no trauma, you have not been aboard a ship.
2: <laughs> is that how that works? <laughs> Thanks. I, I Next time I'm abducted, I will <laughs> carry that. <laughs> so getting back to my interview with Oliver Sacks, we... Uh, he he went on to talk about how you can have these profound visions mm-hmm. and what might induce them and what they might mean. Huh. So let's see. This is in his uh, in his home office, cool. Greenwich Village, New York. Check it out.
5: I wondered whether one could imagine something one had never experienced, in particular whether one could imagine a color one had never seen. And I built up a sort of pharmacological mountain. I won't go into details. And when I was very loaded, this connected my mind with the seventh color of the spectrum, indigo, and the fact that no two people will ever quite agree as to what is indigo or whether there is an indigo. And I said to myself, at the peak of my experience, I want to see indigo now. And suddenly, as if thrown by a paintbrush, a trembling pear-shaped blob of indigo appeared on the wall and I leant towards it in a sort of ecstasy it was a colour I'd never seen I thought, purely metaphorically of course, this is the colour of heaven I thought this is the colour which Giotto had tried to get but never could I also thought it's a colour which is no longer in the world this was the colour of the Paleozoic Sea but has disappeared And as I led forward, the blob disappeared. But I somehow felt that blob not only as luminous, but as numinous. Numinous. I had to look up that word, Chuck. Numinous. Numinous. Numinous.
2: Which, I, I
3: mean, thought he I said believe... numerous.
2: No, 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 no. Numinous, numinous, which I believe means of a relating to
1: spiritual exactly. experience. Exactly. Yes. Oh.
2: Chuck, the, the Ivy, edu- Ivy League educated comedian we have here.
3: <laughs> that, that was very poetic, yeah, I think, it, that interview. It was. it was. beautiful.
2: It was. Well, he's a beautiful man. I mean, all about, everything about him. He's cool. soft-spoken and mm-hmm. he would never, you know, you, some people have like the evil side of it. You right. can't even picture that. Then no you have to side.
3: bleep him in interviews.
2: Well, bleep him quoting someone else. Yeah. So yeah. that's what that was. <laughs> We've got to take a quick break, but we stock. stop when we return. At
3: Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently acapella.edu
2: This is StarTalk Radio. Welcome back. During the break, Chuck, you commented that that you swig Robitussin for what reason? No.
1: <laughs> okay, here's the deal. Because we were talking about, you know, uh, uh, pharmacological drugs being used or inducing hallucinations. And I know that people actually drink Robitussin, prescription-strength Robitussin. You know people to, who do this? I know someone who, well, I I've know somebody have heard that who's phrasing before. Seriously. I have, I have so, a friend yeah. who here's does Here's why friend. I would never do it. I'll tell you why. Very, very quickly. I'll tell you why. So this guy and I are hanging out. He's drinking Lick or Robotus, that's the street (laughs) name for it, okay? Mm -hmm. He starts getting so high that he's hung over, his body's slumped over, and he's calling me Betty. Now, I'm like, two (laughs) things. One... I don't know who Betty is, but if she looks anything like me, that's one ugly broad. <laughs> okay. and and two, <laughs> two. I don't ever want to drink anything that makes me think another man
2: is Betty. It's Betty. Well, period. That's, that cured you of your robotusin. Right. So, so Kara, what, what if, uh, are there psych- psychometric, psych- <laughs> psychotropic, psychotropic yes. drugs that are prescribed? For any particular reason? Not
3: to give people hallucinations on purpose. Right. But of course, there are lots of psychotropics that are prescribed. Anything, you know, from ADHD to schizophrenia to depression, anxiety, all of these um, disorders require drug treatment, if you have drug treatment, with psychotropics. So it's,
2: psychopharmacology is all totally. about Some getting of- into your head.
3: Speed. People take Speed. <laughs> On purpose?
2: On purpose, for just for to that. To help
3: with attention. To help it. Mm-hmm. Cool.
2: Let's get back to my interview with Oliver Sacks and see what he talks about Halluci-
5: hallucinations. I don't know if he's oh. ever had one. Halluc- I'm very interested in hallucinations. Some of the hallucinations occur with people who are blind. And being partly blind myself, I have a few low-level hallucinations myself, but they're only really of blobs of color and geometrical figures and things like that. But it... ...puts people on the spot if they have a hallucination. Hallucination is not like imagery. It's like perception. It seems to come from outside. You have no sense... uh, That That it's inside. uh, uh, Yeah, that you are generating it or any part of you. So you hear music. You run to the window. You look outside for the the source of the music. It's only when you can't find a source for the music... ...that you perhaps start to think... has some part of my brain gone on automatic... Or you may not think that. You may maintain a false belief. One of my old patients was convinced that the patient next door had a phonograph and was putting on the same record again and again. When Schumann had some musical hallucinations at one point, he thought it was divine music.
2: So, Kara, people can have hallucinations, and if you're religious, you have this this sort of inclination to think that it's divine. Yeah, and if you you're, may. If you're not, you just think—others might just think you're crazy. Right. Or they you might think, think you're crazy th- in both cases. You
3: may think you are crazy personally, you- or you may not identify those hallucinations as being external.
2: What is your capacity to judge that you yourself are not— of your own mind.
3: I think it's it's it just really depends on the person. I think that some schizophrenics are aware of their disorder mm-hmm. and they know that they need the Haldol and or whatever drugs they take to get through the day. And I think some have absolutely no idea that they're experiencing hallucinations and delusions. No, the
2: voices in my head just told me you are correct. <laughs> okay. And so, how about the the kids? We're prescribing Ritalin for kids. That's that's affecting their brain in Yeah, some yeah, way. that's what
3: I was mentioning before. That speed.
2: That oh, that that isn't <laughs> okay. Speed. Well,
3: it's 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 like speed. Um, speed like. It's, it's speed like. <laughs> it's a speed like drug, and it does. You know, we don't really know the long term effects of kids taking these drugs year after year after year
2: and we don't because they're the first experiment in this exactly. they're not adults yet mm-hmm. that could be a whole other yeah. we could start another decade like the 60s yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're priming them for that uh let's see i think my one last clip coming up with oliver sax and we'd speak a little more about hallucinations and find out what he tells us
5: among the many sorts of hallucination are sorts which one may wake with suddenly in the night. You wake up suddenly and there's a pterodactyl above your head. These hypnopompic hallucinations, as they're called, are often of giant figures, sometimes frightening figures, sometimes an immense spider, although sometimes of a little man and green, sometimes of an angel. They may be akin to dreams in, in some ways, but here you are conscious and the thing is with you in the room. There's a presence in the room. It is not entirely easy coming to terms with something like this i've actually recently been hearing about a ten-year-old boy who woke suddenly in the night and saw a figure of a tall woman next to his bed who told him she was his guardian angel he turned on the light and the figure didn't disappear. He ran into his parents when he came back. The figure had disappeared. Now, this little boy was very disturbed. He had no particular belief in angels or visions, but something had happened which he could not deny, but could not explain, and could not integrate into his worldview. I suspect that visionary experience, whether drug-induced or in dreams or whatever, has played a part in the genesis of everything from folklore to religion. For example, there for some reason, there are physiological reasons for this, Lilliputian hallucinations so-called are rather common of little people and one finds in almost every culture that there are elves fairies trolls little people one wants to say they're not at the sort of lofty level of of angels in the heavens but they do represent another reality i think this is almost built into the brain as well as built into culture
2: is he telling us that it's built into my brain that i'll imagine little people when i sleep when i'm asleep possibly gremlins Gremlins are built into our well, brain. He's
3: saying he's seeing it across cultures, just the same way that we see faces and things that aren't really faces. Right. We may be predisposed so, genetically or evolutionarily. You mean when to. I look
2: at clouds, I see Abraham Lincoln? Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And okay. you don't see an alien. You no, see a human. I see a human. A form, right. Because that's important for your evolution.
2: I don't see a lobster.
3: No. You may, <laughs> if you're Dali.
2: No, but if it is a lobster, I probably won't think lobster. I'll think it's... If it really does look lobster like... Man. Lo- <laughs> like a
3: right. Lobster
4: man. No, I'm more likely to say it looks
2: like something familiar to me. Yeah. Right? Exactly. And so uh, what's the limit of the brain? I can imagine a day where we plug a USB port into your neck mm. and mm-hmm. upload or download. We kind of did that with Watson on Jeopardy mm-hmm. yes. a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cal, are you afraid of Watsons coming or, uh, rising up? Not, Not at, all. at all.
3: Excellent. Watson knows things. He has a memory bank.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, like, so do we. Like
3: we said, but ours is very different.
2: Why, why? So why can't he ever be us?
3: One thing a computer still can't do is recognize an object that's partially occluded. If, it, if you put a picture of a cat that's hiding behind a tree, a computer will never know it's a cat. And this is a huge problem. Because the tree project. is in the way.
2: What do you mean? The tree's in
3: the... No, you <laughs> can that's see its say, ears. You can see its tail. We know it's a cat. A computer really has a hard time synthesizing Real. a whole from parts. And
2: it's easy for us. This
3: is a human perceptual thing that's so easy, and we don't know how it works.
2: Okay. we got to end the show there. You've been listening to StarTalk. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, and as always, keep looking up.
3: At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at
4: capella.edu.